Randy Ash. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Franny, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm supposed to stay eight inches from this microphone under fear of death, according to Lee. So um, I will do the best I can. But there are times I get excited. I have a tendency to bite the microphone, so I'll have, <laughs> I have to be careful. Anyway, you know, uh, I'm CIA. Okay, that covers it. Catholic Irish alcoholic. I, I can sit down now. You know the story. The parents are alcoholic. The grandparents were alcoholic. Everybody that I knew was alcoholic. Uh, my home group is the South Bay Survivors. I've got 34 years of, 38 years of sobriety. My sobriety date is uh, February 7th, 1970. Uh, I had, yeah, that's a good one. I don't believe it yet, but it's true. And um, I had the same sponsor until she died. And, um, and now I have another person. Uh, Betty from my same home group originally, who is my sponsor, and she's pretty sick, so uh, say a prayer. <laughs> anyway, um, I grew up in New York. Um, we had the kind of a life where if it was a wedding, you drank. If it was a funeral, you drank. Uh, if we're going to talk about something serious, let's sit down and have a drink. If you're going to have a party, you know, let's drink. But... Whatever. And then the other thing is, is that I went to a lot of movies when I was a kid. And, you know, the, uh, oh, who was that? Uh, all the actors, you know, they were rotten actors at that time. So the only thing they could think of was when there was a moment of stress is to go over and pour a martini. You know, that was the, the big re reaction to stress in the movies at that time. So I, you know, I thought, oh, okay. And um, so I learned, I learned how to drink in spite of, in fact, of everything. That's all. Whatever happened, you drank. That's all. I mean, you know, what else was there to do? The other thing is, is that I didn't have much of a father or a mother figure to teach me anything else other than drinking both parents, alcoholic grandparents, and everybody else. Now, I'm the oldest of three girls. All of us are alcoholics. I have four kids. They're all alcoholics. You cannot tell me this is not a genetic disease. And... Um, I'm happy also to report that all my kids are sober. And uh, not through any of my doing, I'll tell you. I, my sponsor taught me to keep my mouth shut when my kids were getting here. She used, to she used to make me practice keeping my mouth shut because she said to me one time, I don't know why I'm saying this. I don't usually talk about this, so I guess somebody needs to hear it. Um, Franny, look, your kids are teenagers. They're automatically conditioned to push you away. That's what they're supposed to do at this time. They are getting ready to get out on their own. So she said, you try to shove AA down their, their throats. She says, they're going to be pushing you away, and they're going to be pushing AA away. So I say, so what do I do? She said, you keep your mouth shut. And it was good because what they did was they found AA through my friends and through my husband. And uh, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. Carter and David were loading the groceries one day into the refrigerator, and Carter turned around and looked at David, and he said, you're drunk. And David said, yeah, he slid down the wall. And, and, and uh, so that was the beginning of Carter 12-stepping David, and he's still his sponsor, you know. So stay out of the way. God's got a plan, you know. First time I drank, I was uh, six years old, serving drinks at a party of my father's. I'm not going to get into great detail on that. And what happened was I tasted the drinks on my tray, and I thought they were so good. My sister Ann thought they were so good. The two of us walked into a closet and drank everything on the tray. <laughs> first time I got drunk. Second time I, got, uh, second time I drank, I got drunk, and that was the first time I ever saw the Allen on face. You know that look they give you? How many Al-Anons are in here? Raise your hand if you dare. Good for you. Good for you. I got to tell you something. We do not know what the hell you're talking about. We do not know. I, 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 was, I would be drinking and my husband would stand there and he would be saying things and it would be like, 
some other language or the radio reception was fogged or something. But, you know, the best that I could do was stand there and hold still until he finished so I could go have another drink. <laughs> because, it, you know, it sounds funny. I know it, it sounds funny. But it's horrible because they, it, what happened was I got drunk and the next day my, my mother didn't know it. And she came in to wake me up for my little job down at the New York Public Library. I was 14. I'd gotten myself a job. And um, I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, sick, sorry, and sober, you know. And she looked at me, and she just sort of like slumped in the doorway and gave me that look. And, and I'm looking back at her, and she's looking at me, and I'm looking at her. And she finally just sort of like shrugged and walked away. And that was when I found out I could outweigh anybody. <laughs> but I also, I also registered that event, and I knew there was something horribly wrong there, but for the life of me, I did not know. I just didn't know what it was. It wasn't that I chose to ignore anything. It was just that I didn't know what the heck she wanted. So, But somehow or other, it made enough of an impression on me that when I took my fourth and fifth step with my sponsor, I made a note of that. I wrote that little tiny story down. And when I talked to my sponsor, I said, you know, Dottie, I said, I've got to tell you something. I want to share this with you because I feel like it's important, but I don't know why. So I explained to her what had happened and about my mother looking and walking away. And she said, Franny, you don't understand that yet, do you? And I said, no, I never did understand it. She says, look, let me tell you something. She says, your father's an alcoholic, and he's already in the process of starting to die from his disease, right, when you were 14? I said, yeah, he got real bad right about that time. She said, and you also told me at one time that your parents loved each other dearly. I said, they did. They, they never saw anybody else except each other. She said, Okay. So she says, your mother's watching your father die of the disease. She walks into your room, and here you are, looking like him, smelling like him. And she realizes that her oldest daughter has the same disease. She says, that kind of agony is inexpressible. There are no words. That's why she didn't say anything. And my, I got it. I suddenly realized that I owed my mother more than one of those social amends. You know the... Uh, we call them apologies or something. Oh, well, gee, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sorry if I ever hurt you, really. I'd, uh, you know, um, anyway, I'm sorry. Goodbye. You know, that, that kind of an amends. You know, we've all been tempted to make a few of those. I realized that I had a lifelong amend to make to that woman. And in the course of my story, if I have time, I'd be happy to tell you how it happened that actually we changed from an antagonistic relationship because she she loved me. I was her oldest, but she hated me because I was just like my father. And um, we had an antagonistic relationship up until a year before she died. And But when she died, we were very good friends. And that's, like, marvelous. It's a miracle. Okay, the third time I drank, um, I got drunk and I got pregnant. <laughs> I'm sorry, you don't need the details. <laughs> and the fourth time I drank, I got pregnant and I got married. I mean, I got drunk and I got married. You can only get pregnant once while you're pregnant, you know, but anyway. But the thing is, is all of the major milestones in my life were, that were negative were usually preceded by I got drunk and then, you know. So anyway, here I am, I get married. We, that's why we came to California from New York. And that's why I come from California now. That's been my home. My kids are all born there. And we set out to do what, you know, his idea was to have a, a wife and a home and a house with a white picket fence and a, a dog and a cat and a couple of kids. And he was going to bring his paycheck home and give it to me. And I was going to pay the bills. And I mean, he had a very four square kind of look on life. And See, that's where his program fell down, because I had no intention of doing any of that. Okay, accidentally I had kids. I couldn't seem to help that. But as far as this housewifey thing, I, no. I went, uh, I went to my girlfriend, Shirley, one time. when we were, we were living out in North Hollywood, which was, uh, to, they wrote a book about it called The Split Level Trap. And uh, I went to my girlfriend, Shirley Schwartz, one time, and I said, Shirley, look. And the kids are out playing in the, the little uh, play pools. And uh, she, she said, yeah. She said, what? I said, is this all there is? 
And she said, well, yeah, what else do you want? And I thought, well, why did, I mean, my parents sent me away to private schools. Uh, I, w I went to private high schools. I went to Hunter College. You know, I mean, this is an education that you can carry around. This is the kind you put on a wall, you know what I'm saying? And all I'm doing is I'm just breeding. I'm breeding thousands of little Catholics, you know. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. So I went up. I know where I get the answer. Go up and talk to somebody up at the church. <laughs> and I'm sure his name was Father O'Brien. Everybody's name was Father O'Brien. So I, I talked, I walked up to him, and, and I knew him, you know, from Sunday Mass. And I said, uh, Father, not that, by the way, not that I was getting hostile by this time, but I said, Father, if the only thing you want out of me is to breed thousands of little Catholics, why do you guys educate girls? And he looked at me like it was so self-evident, and he said, well, so you won't raise ignorant boys. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and I thanked him for his input. You know, don't don't forget, this is like in 1954, okay? 55, you know? Anybody in here with gray hair has probably heard that answer at one time or another. And um, I thanked him for his input, and I left him, and I walked away from the church. And what I didn't realize was in walking away from the church, I wasn't teaching them a lesson. I wasn't getting even with them. You know, the churches and the institutions that we have are useful parts of society. They are the glue that holds our society together. They give a common cause. They give a common place for us to gather. There are common rituals. There's a whole bunch of common beliefs that we exercise through these churches and through these different institutions. And the thing is, is that it just bugs me have you ever heard somebody get up here and say, I'm a recovered alcoholic and a recovered Catholic? And then everybody goes, ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> hey, you know what you're doing, you laughers? You're condoning a resentment. You're helping to kill that fool. <laughs> you know, think about it. That business of getting up here and talking about being a recovered anything but recovered alcoholic is an expression of a resentment in one way or another. Think about it. Because what happened to me was I had all those resentments and one day somebody got up and said that and I reacted to it. I said to myself, why am I, what's going on? And I had to go home and think long and hard and then I called up my sponsor and I talked to her about it and you know, she actually felt the same way I did. Ha, 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 ha. And we both talked about it and we, we finished talking. We agreed. We weren't going to laugh at that anymore. We weren't going to put anybody on the spot behind it, for heaven's sake. But we just did not want to be part of somebody's resentment when we had enough business trying to clear up our own. You know, if I talk about anything here, I'm going to talk about recovery from resentment because I was so full of hate by the time I got into this program. Mostly of myself. So, anyway... That guy and I, he couldn't tolerate me. I couldn't tolerate anything. And I was drinking day and night. I, I started on cream sherry and when the women used to get together for coffee clutches and it finally reached the point where I, here's how I got up in the morning. Um, I'm sorry if I have to mention this to you, but it is part of my story. And there are lies of omission and there are lies of commission. And I left this out. It would be a lie of omission, and I'm not going to do it. So I would get up in the morning. I would drop two rolls of Benzedrine, and I would wash it down with a half, with a, I would make a half a cup of coffee and the other half scotch. So I would wash the bennies down with the coffee and scotch, and then I would go back to bed until the nightmares drove me screaming out of bed, and I would attack the living room with a toothbrush and call myself efficient. <laughs> you know? And the reason, very strongly, the reason that I say that I am an alcoholic is because it is the alcohol that brought me to my knees. Not the drugs, the alcohol. The drugs, the reason I took the drugs was because it simply made the day longer. 
I could go harder, the lights were brighter, the people were laughing more, it was more fun. But the one activity that I wanted to perform in the course of that event was to drink. And the other thing I always wondered about, are there any fools in here who waited until they got to the party to start drinking? (laughs) I mean, we are the kind of people who, like my husband sings every now and then when he's in a quirky mood, be prepared. That's the the Boy Scouts marching song. And he's got some dirty words to it. I won't go into that. But but be prepared. So if I knew I was going to go to a party, if I knew I was going to go out to dinner, if I knew I was going to leave that house, I would start drinking to get ready so that by the time I got there, man, I was in the right I was in the mode. I didn't have to build. I didn't. I wasn't looking for any runway once I got to the party. You know, I, I hit the runway about an hour ago, and man, I'm in full flight. That, and, and and that's the way I used to party. And I wasn't sleeping anymore and waking up. I was passing out and coming to. So this is all by the time I'm like between 25 and 28 years old. I, I'm hit, I have already hit the skids, you know. And, um, my husband was going crazy with this because we had four kids and he's trying to, to get me to be a wife and a mother. And you know, I gotta tell you something. He's an LA, he, well, he retired now. He's an LA fireman and they don't raise any wimps, those guys. And I could bring that grown man to tears. One time he stood there in our kitchen folding and unfolding a kitchen towel with tears running down his face saying to me, who are you? Where the heck did my wife go? I want you to get out of here and I want you to send her back because you're some kind of devil that I don't want in my life. I want the girl that I married. I want the woman that is raising my kids. I want the lady that I want to grow old with. And you are some kind of an animal, some kind of a devil, and get out of my sight. And this man is crying with these tears, hot tears, just like blowing out of his eyes. And I'm standing there and, you know, I don't know what the heck to say or do. Because I, I don't know. And uh, years later, I said to him, remember the time that we, and I described it to him, and he said, yeah, I sure do. I said, why did you keep folding and unfolding that towel? <laughs> and he said, because if I had put it down, I would have strangled you to death. And, you know, so I did ask the right question. And, uh, <laughs> well, anyway, that's, that was the relationship, okay? What happens the day my oldest son is eight years old? I think it was this birthday. Um, maybe a day before or after. Anyway, it was a weekend. We were having his birthday, and my husband went to work. He said he'd be home by 3 o'clock because uh, he worked 24 on, 24 off. So he said he was going to... Um, he was he was going to come home and we were going to have Buddy's birthday. Now I had gotten to hanging out with the hippies down on the beach. You know, I uh, this is in uh, early 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 sixties, and um, I went down the beach one time and I saw these people down there and the guys had these hip huggers with bell bottoms and a vest and no shirt and the girls all looked like Russian peasants. You know, and I and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking. And I walk over and introduce myself formally to them because that's the way I was raised. And I, and I became part of them. And I went home and I threw away my little hats and my gloves and my purses. And well, in other words, in six weeks, I'm running around down the beach, hairy, happy, and hippie too, you know, so <laughs> with my buddies. My husband does not know what's going on. So we've got this birthday coming up for this this oldest kid, Buddy, and uh, he goes off to work with which I immediately grab the kids and do the same thing I do every day, go down the beach and start getting drunk. Only this time I'm sitting in Tony's on the pier and uh, some idiot down the, the, down the bar is buying me some Mai Tais and, 
and I'm sucking them up. And every time he buys me a drink, he moves one bench closer. You know how that <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, my husband comes walking in. I'm thoroughly drunk. He's thoroughly pissed off. And he comes up behind me, and he grabs me by the neck, and he pulls me off the bar stool, and he starts punching me down the pier. He's steering me. He punches me this way, and I go that way, and he punches me this way. So he's steering me down the pier. I'm drunk and stumbling. It's just a total mess. And we get down to the end of the pier, and I see the kids standing there looking at us. And it's not like I had a, an awakening or anything. I had lots of those thoughts. I ignored them. But I, what I did was I, I saw something was going on, and I said, never mind this. And I, and I pulled some change out of my pocket, and I gave it to my daughter, who was nine years old. And I said, Annie, all you, all you and all the kids, you go up and buy ice cream and walk home. We only live two, two and a half blocks from the beach. So I said, by the time you kids get home, we'll stop by. We'll get by a birthday cake, and we'll have the birthday party. And what's the big deal? No big deal. So anyway, by the time we get home with the cake, which was like stop by the store, pick up a sheet cake, and go right home, the phone is ringing. And so my husband picks up the phone, and, and he turns as white as a sheet. He likes shattered. And he handed it to me, and I'm, I said, Annie, is this Annie? What, what, you know, what's going on? And uh, Annie says, Mommy, we don't know what happened, but Buddy was sitting on the railing of the pier eating his ice cream, and we don't know whether he was pushed by one of the other boys or he fell over from his hands being slipped. Mommy, come down here quick. He fell over and he fell into the water and we can't find him. So I know, <clears throat> I know what it's like to be shocked into absolute cold operational sobriety. I know that that can happen because it happened to me. My husband was, like, shattered. I pushed him out the door. I drove us back down the beach in that old car we had. And I went running down the beach because I happened to be a hell of a swimmer. And this, the only person in the world who could have stopped me was this big, fat Samoan friend of mine who grabbed me and flipped me around, pushed me down on the sand, and he said to me, Damn it, Franny, don't you find him. And he held me kneeling in the sand until one of my friends came walking out of the water carrying the body of my birthday kid. And uh, next thing I remember is being up at the hospital and saying, hey, God, you know, I please don't let this child die because I'm an incompetent human being. Don't, don't take him because I'm a rotten mother. I mean, if there's any equity in the world at all, take me because I just simply do not and never have belonged here. Take me and let him live. These kids don't need me, but, you know, this kid loved life. Please let him live. And, of course, you know, I'm standing here to tell the story. He was dead. And um, we went home, and I'm not really clear about the next couple of weeks, but I do know this. I didn't cry. And the reason I didn't cry was because the kind of world that I had finally created for myself with my buddies down on the beach and then not hanging with the hippies anymore but hanging with the people who supplied the drugs and then not hanging with the people who supplied the drugs but hanging with the gangsters, with the guys who had the guns, okay? The deal is, is that you don't let somebody like that know any weakness. You don't ask for help. You don't show any softness because if you do, you'll get your, your, your throat cut and your money took because that's the way it is. So in the world that I had created for myself in, in, at that time, I simply did not cry about that baby. I mean, what the people didn't realize was that I just went quietly crazy. I do know that that's what happened. I went crazy, but it didn't show because I just sat there. And um, six weeks after that, my husband comes to me, and um, I'm an automaton by then. I'm just going through the motions. And he says to me, okay, Franny, he says, here's the deal. I talked to the teachers. I talked to the psychologist. I talked to the psychiatrist. I talked I talk to the counselor. I talked to the guy because he'd been spending a lot of money trying to get all sorts of psychological help for me. And I, I went to them for entertainment. I didn't, they didn't mean anything to me. I, uh, but he was spending an awful lot of money trying to fix me. 
And he had gone and he had talked to all those people. And he says, I'm going to do this. He says, I'm divorcing you and I'm taking the kids away from you so that you don't murder another one of my children. And I'll tell you, because the alcoholic is the primary scapegoat in any family and the mother is the center, which means that it may have happened down the street, but it's your fault, you know, because I was the alcoholic and the mother, I simply agreed with him that that whole thing was my fault, as he told me, and I said, yeah, you're right. So when he said he was going to take the kids away from me, in a sense, I thought, you know, that's a logical idea. That is logical. And I got to thinking about it one day when I wasn't quite as smashed as I usually was, and I realized, wait a second. I don't care about anything in this world. I don't care about another living thing. I only want to drink. I can't stand you. I can't stand me. But those kids mean something to me, and I don't want to give them up. Selfish, unselfish, call it what you want. The point is, is that in my heart, I didn't want to give those kids up. So I thought about it. And what I did was I went out and I started interviewing lawyers. And I looked for a lawyer who smelled like a newcomer. <laughs> I found a drunk. I hired him. I seduced him. And I blackmailed him. And he provided false witnesses in a court of law, people who I had never seen before or since, who got up on that stand and said, yeah, she's not much of a wife, but she sure is a good mother. And I got those kids. And I thought I was so hip, slick, and cool that I had worked it out that way. And man, I went through life thinking, yeah, you know, I can beat this system. I hate this system, and I'm going to beat it. But in the meantime, I had the kids, and I had to get a job. So with this keen intellect and this fabulous education, I went out, and in a week, I had the ideal job. I was a barmaid in a beer bar about <laughs> five to six blocks from my house. I worked during the day, and it was perfect. I learned how to, um, I learned how to serve beer. I never liked beer. It makes you fat. Uh, but I used to take scotch in with me, and I used to drink the scotch in my coffee cup. And, uh, and I learned how to, uh, I turned into a shark on the pool table. Um, I had certain boyfriends that used to meet me in the back. I turned tricks in the back room. Um, I was getting tougher and tougher and uglier and uglier, and that's the way it was. And my kids used to stop by there occasionally, and it was a sort of like a family tavern, except I seemed to be the only one who had my kids in there. And um, and that went on. And one day I was cleaning up the bar, and this guy came slithering in. And you know what? He danced the way I did. He played pool the way I did. He stayed up for days at a time like I did. He was a liar, cheating, a thief, just like I was. And he asked me to marry him. Now, when you've got a deal like that, how can you turn it down? So he stole a credit card and asked me to go to Las Vegas with him. And of course, I said yes. And we went to Las Vegas and we got married and we got thrown out of a casino. Uh, I, I only remember one. Anyway, I remember coming home and I got pregnant, and I had another baby within a year. And when that baby was six months old, that man with his beady black eyes is standing there looking at me saying, I can't put up with your game. I'm gone. Now, wait a minute. This is the man I had carefully chosen as my life partner. <laughs> and now he's getting out of the corral? I, you know, I, I didn't want uh, I had a problem, I guess, you know. I, I didn't want to let go of him because I was that much further in my drinking. I had another kid, and here I am, you know, just trying like hell to hold things together, but I just couldn't. So I remembered that my mother used to call AA on my father. She used to turn him in. <laughs> so I decided I was going to turn Parnell in. So I called up Alcoholics Anonymous, and because of the arrogance, the natural arrogance that I have in my own characteristics, 
I said, that, you know how newcomers love to be helpful and they're always hanging around the phone or hanging around the coffee bar trying to do something, please? And uh, anyway, uh, a newcomer answered the phone. Hello, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, they didn't give me, when I told the operator to give me Alcoholics Anonymous, she gave me the Manhattan Beach Club. But he answered it. Hello, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, good, I got there. I couldn't dial, I was drunk, so that's why I told the operator to get it. <laughs> and, and I said, I said to this little voice, I said, uh, let me talk to the boss. And I don't deal with clerks. And, and so he says, I all, then I, then I hear, you know, you hold the phone and he says, hey, somebody wants to talk to the boss. And the next thing I hear is, give me that. No, no, give me that. Give me that. And, and, and they're, 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 they're fighting for the phone, you know? Finally, some guy picks up the phone and he says, hi. I don't know. Let's call him Harry. I don't remember. Hi, this is Harry. Listen. Our higher power isn't available to talk to you right now. <laughs> but as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can represent him in any matters concerning the disease or recovery therefrom. <clears throat> May I help you? <laughs> I started telling him my long, sorry story about him and what he did, and yeah, da 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 da. Then within five minutes, the guy knew. Yeah, we were talking about somebody out there, but you know, we had a live one right here on the phone. <laughs> so he said to me, "Listen," he said, "I want you to come up to the meeting tonight, and I will send a car for you." And I hadn't had a car sent for my ass in a long time. <laughs> but because I wanted him to respect me, now listen, you know, I was married, but a girl's got to look out for herself, you know. And, and I knew that if I met that guy, and in the meantime, you know, well, I always had a plan B. You know, plan B, plan C. So anyway, I said, no, nope, I've got a car. I'll go up there. I'll get myself up there. Give me the, so he gave me the address and he kept repeating what time it started and he was telling her, all right, no, we got it set. We got it set. Now, remember what I said? I never start, started out on any social engagement without priming the pump first, <laughs> right? He didn't say to me, don't drink. <laughs> So I got myself ready, and I also, I put on my 79-cent Zoris from Zodis, because this is a beach community we lived in. Everybody went barefooted. And I put on a bell-bottom, hip-huggers, corduroy, beige that I'd found out in my yard after a party. And they, they fit me. I washed them, and they fit me, so that made them mine. I had a size 16-and-a-half men's shirt that had a button missing that I had bought from Goodwill for a dime or a quarter. There was a button missing right here, so I pinned it very carefully from the inside for propriety. I, <laughs> I had a camel-colored sweater that I'd stolen from Goodwill because I couldn't afford to buy it. I had a broken nose and two black eyes from the heated discussion the night before. And I had my hair in an afro, and this was in 1967. <laughs> And the afro didn't come in until 1975. <laughs> and I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting wondering if you were going to live up to my expectations. <laughs> I spent the next three years drunk in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason for that is very simple. Now, whenever anybody quotes anything to me, I always say, is that in the book? If you're a newcomer and you don't know what these guys are talking about and it's not in the book, don't worry about it. 
But the thing is, you got to get yourself a book and you got to study it so that you know whether somebody is just imposing their own stupid opinions on you <laughs> or trying to teach you something for your own benefit. And the arbiter of all of that is this textbook that we've got called The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I, I, I'm, I'm just letting you know that. But there is one saying that is not in the book that I think was the reason that I couldn't get sober. There's a saying around here, you're only as sick as your secrets. And you see, I wasn't going to tell anybody that I was the woman that killed my kid. I wasn't going to tell anybody that I had stood, and because I knew what your fourth and fifth step were about. I, I heard people talking about it at meetings. I was drunk. I wasn't stupid. <laughs> and, you know, I heard people talking about that, and I, I wasn't going to tell you that, I, uh, that at the age of 30, or between 30 and 33, I had stood in a liquor store trying to negotiate my body for some booze, and the guy saying to me, Franny, you're not worth a half a pint of scotch. <laughs> I was certainly not going to tell you that I had spent some time hiding under the Redondo Pier with a long stick chasing those pier with those wharf rats away because the tide was coming in, the rats were coming up on the rocks, and I had to stay under there because I'd stolen somebody's something and eaten it, snorted it, snorted it, uh, God, sold it, lost it. You know, whatever you do with other people's stuff. And there were the two-legged rats up on the pier with guns looking for me. And I'm hiding down under the pier. This is more than once, you know. I've been to six hospitals and six jails, and I don't have six different hospitals, six different jails, and I do not know how many times. I was destroying myself piecemeal. One time I was sitting in, the, in an emergency room, and the doctor was stitching right here, and he stopped, and the string is it's black silk, and he's hanging down, this little curvy needle. And he looks at me, and he throws his hands up, and he walks across the room, and he's got his back to me, and he turns around, and he looks at me, and he's crying. And I said to him, what's the matter with you? And he said to me, do you realize, do you have any idea what it feels like to be putting stitches in where I just took out last week? I mean, that's what I was doing to myself. Always, always drinking. So three years in Alcoholics Anonymous, unwilling to tell you who I am. And the reason for that was because I knew without a doubt that you would sense you would have a meeting. <laughs> and then you would send a committee and you would have the committee say to me, Franny, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has the best recovery rate of anybody that deals with this disease. But honey, we only work with human beings, so you got to go. That's the way I felt. So I wasn't going to tell you. Until finally, I had been in Alcoholics Anonymous long enough that I heard people talking about stuff even I wouldn't talk about. And one time, very quietly, I told one of the guys the story about my son. And he um, he cried. And he said, what a freedom. He said, I've known that you've had something. He says, that's a, that's a killer. He says, but he said, he said to me, weren't you and your husband standing in the same place when it happened? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, then how come it's only your fault? And... Uh, I realized I had some amends to make, but not necessarily only to the dad. And anyway, I want to tell you this. And again, I guess it's important because I don't usually make this note. I'm free. You realize that? I am free. I was not in control of that child's life, God was. I don't know what reason there was. I don't know why it happened to us. But the fact is that it happened, and you know what? I accept it. And accepting God's will in all of my life has put me in the position of being able to say, yes, that's what happened, and I'm sharing it with you because somebody might need to hear this. It's remarkable. So what happened was I got sober, but I was useless, and uh, I got a sponsor 
I asked her to be my sponsor, and she looked at me. I said, Dottie, will you be my sponsor? And she said, God, I don't know, Franny, you're a loser. (laughs) I was the first thing Dottie ever said to me, Dottie McCaffrey. And I said, well, and then I said the word I hadn't used in at least 15 years. I said, please. And she said, well, and she put her hand out, and one of her lieutenants slapped the directory into her hand, you know. She was, she was a dragon lady, so she had all these lieutenants running around. And, you got them out here, too. And, and she took this thing, and she said, she started marking it and flipping pages, and she says, these are the meetings I go to. And she hands me the directory. She said, I'll see you there. Oh, my God, I had a sponsor. So I went home and I stopped drinking. But you see, I also got sober in 1970 when everybody was saying, and we will not talk about drugs. So what happened was I said, okay, no problem. And so I didn't tell anybody that I was on speed. (laughs) There was no way to discuss it, I didn't try. And I, I and I have to tell you confidentially, I don't know how many we killed in that period of time. It's another thing to think about. Anytime we get righteous, Alcoholics Anonymous as a group get righteous, we get dangerous, you know? So anyway, I'm not telling anybody, but I'm not drinking, and you know what? I'm not drinking. I, I, talk, I talk about nervous. Oh, my God. <laughs> You know, and I'm not calling her up because I haven't figured out what to do with her yet because I, you know, I don't know about the rest of you, but I don't let anybody know when I don't know how to do something. See, I didn't know how to do this and I wasn't going to tell anybody because then they think I was stupid. So I didn't tell anybody. I didn't know what to do with the sponsor. I just didn't contact her. And I carefully stayed away from whatever meeting she went to and I mis- <laughs> and I misquoted her all over the place. Well, I didn't know it was getting back to her. She was getting mighty tired of it. So one day, uh, I told you how I used to get up to two rolls of bennies, the scotch and the coffee. Now it was just the two rolls of bennies and the coffee. And I guess that was progress. But anyway, (laughs) 7 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. Oh, and one thing she told me, she says, was, don't worry about it. I am never going to call you. I don't want a thing you have. She said, if you want what I have, you call me. I'm your sponsor. She said, I am not going to chase you. I said, okay. Seven o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. I pick it up. It's her. She lied. And she's saying, how are you? I'm going, fine. I'm crazy. Fine. She said, good. She said, well, have you stopped taking speed? How did she know? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why anybody would even notice it. But anyway, she says, have you stopped taking speed? And I said, yes. And she said, good. When did you quit? And I went, this morning. She said, okay, come on over to my house. I want you to spend the day over at my house. I want you to hang around at my house because I got sober people in and out all day, every day, and you don't know how to do sober. Get your kids off to school and come on over to my house because I think that's the only way we're going to work with you. So, and she says, take a shower. I said, yeah, I will. (laughs) So I took a shower after the kids went and I went over to her house and, and I hid under a blanket in her living room so that nobody would see me. They would come in, all these sober people, and they would say to her, what's that? She would, she would say, shh, nothing. And, uh, and I'd be under the blanket because, you know, I, I, I was not safe anywhere. I was not safe anywhere. And uh, so she let me just develop. I finally came out from under the blanket, and I, I was finally willing to sit in the dining room in the corner. And finally, I, one day I sat at the, at the table, and 
And, and you know what happened? She started talking to me about the steps, and she told me later that she got me working the steps as fast as she could because she couldn't stand me. And she had to get me to that change of personality where I, I, at least I was seemingly human because I, I could understand it. I was, I was really, I was not um, humanoid. I was not. So anyway, what happened was she got me into the steps and she got me working the steps. And after I had worked the ninth step, I was at a meeting with my, with my friends one day. And this little gal, this little Indian gal that I'd been watching, because she was just, she was just a catastrophe looking for a place to happen, came running up to me and she said, I've talked to everybody and everybody tells me to ask you, so I'm asking you, will you be my sponsor? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, oh God, Becky, I don't know, stay right there. So I ran over to my sponsor and I said, Dottie, Becky just asked me to be her sponsor, what should I do? And Dottie said, Franny, you stay one step ahead of her, she'll never know the difference. <laughs> So I started sponsoring Becky, and the way I started sponsoring Becky very simply was I took her over to my sponsor's house a lot. <laughs> and I let them talk, and I stayed out of the crossfire. And I'd, pick her, and I'd pick her up for meetings. And, you know, I still was unemployed and unemployable. So they sent me back to school, and we had a whole bunch of long introductions, so I'm taking five minutes, right? Okay. So what happened was uh, I went back to school, and I... I got a degree, and I, and I found out you know, I was still pretty good at school. So I, I went to work, and I, and I, and I started uh, trying to be a human being, you know, and I'll skip through a whole bunch of the early sobriety. But I'll tell you this now. I'm 38 years, of, uh, 38 years in this program, and uh, you don't stop learning. What happened to me last year is, aha, last two years, I don't think I'm going to cry, but I think it still moves me. What happened was I was doing the kind of a job I adored. I adored my job. I was working with kids at risk. I was working in the theater. I had um, a master in fine arts in theater. I had already gotten that. And, you know, I was using it to the benefit of me and to the benefit of mankind. I was making a decent salary. And, and every now and then I'd pick one of these kids out of the, the, the classes and they'd go to an AA meeting with me. I didn't, wasn't much quiet about my sobriety. And we were putting shows on and we were doing real theater. And what happened was I had a horrendous accident on stage and so I wound up with a bionic wrist. And I went back to work afterwards anyway and then what happened was I started I had bad bones. I started having knee problems. No, I started having hip problems. So then I had a hip replacement. Still didn't stop doing what I was doing. And then finally I had a knee replacement. And that like ended it. And it, I felt like it was taken away from me. And with 38 years of sobriety, and the reason I'm pushing that number, and with a sponsor that I talk to on a regular basis, and with about 12 sponsees that I'm in constant contact with, usually I don't know, five or six every week. I want to tell you something. I developed a flaming resentment that I didn't realize. Oh, I had such a resentment that that had been taken away from me and that I had to retire. And I wasn't miserable as much as I was simply very quiet. I was angry. I wasn't the pathetic kind of angry. I was the kind of angry that, look out, be careful what you say, you know, that kind of angry. And you know who finally told me about it? My sponsor and I talked about it in great length, and we really didn't think that, there, that we knew there was something. It wasn't that. But I have to tell you the truth. It was a psychiatrist who said to me, you know, you got one hell of a resentment. And I looked at her and I said, well, what are we going to do about it? She said, I don't know. You're the expert. <laughs> she says, I'm not an AA. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? She says, you're the expert. She says, you know what to do it. She says, the only thing you need to do as soon as you realize this, as soon as she said this, as soon as you guys Realize that you have a resentment, how lucky you are, and you know exactly what to do with it. You go to that book, and you look at those instructions. And, and I thought, oh, my God. She's not going to prescribe anything. She's not going to do anything. She's not going <laughs> to 
should have let me handle my little resentment all on my own. So anyway, my sponsor was in town last week, and we got together and we talked. And Betty and I really had a good discussion. But you know, you don't always know where the information's coming from, but you've got to be open for it. And the last thing I want to tell you is that, you know, I've been studying meditation for the last two years now, and your mind does get quiet. And, you know, I don't have a naturally quiet mind. I have one of these busy, always clicking, going like a little, the little bunny that could, you know, that, that, and, 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 and I have learned to get quiet, and it's been an absolute blessing for me. And what I'm doing is right now I'm looking at other areas in my life that I can work to be productive, to develop my skills, to share. And one of the ways that I share that keeps me going is by talking to my friends in AA who are here. You know, you guys keep me sober. See, I, I'm only up here just having fun, but your presence here is what makes this whole thing valid for me and keeps me sober. And together, we survive in a way that nobody and nothing else can offer us. And I don't want to hear a complaint about uh, from any of you this weekend. <laughs> Every problem you have is a problem of abundance. That car you're complaining about? Shit, you didn't have it last year and you were praying for one. And it goes on like that. You know, just apply that to every single thing in your lives. You know, I'm going to wish you one thing. I hope within a year, some fool walks up to you, stares into your eyes and says, will you be my sponsor? Thank you. <laughs>